Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. In this episode, I had the privilege of talking with Mary Crowderoof, who is an archivist, archivalist, something like that, in regards to Quakerism. And this was really exciting for me because I have been talking a lot about Quaker individuals over the past few years, and it was nice to actually be able, able to talk to somebody who was a Quaker and knew a lot about them. In some ways, though, it was also disappointing because I kind of elevated the Quakers, and I should have known better, right? I mean, humans are humans, and we are very complex creatures, and um, the same thing goes with with any ideology. You're going to find a lot of people, uh, a lot of variance within ideologies, and then a lot of inconsistency even within somebody's own internal ideology because we're hypocrites a lot of times, too and self-interested. So as we talked about the Quakers, um, I still really respect them and, and a lot of the work that they've been able to do and some of their ideologies really influence their ability to be able to, um, you know, to move forward on justice issues before other groups do. Nevertheless, it, they definitely have a solid past just like uh, all of our groups do. So hopefully in this episode, since we talk so much about Quakers, you'll be able to hear a little bit more about Quakers from somebody who actually knows something about them. And we'll also have another episode uh, right after this one where we're going to talk with another Quaker and maybe dig into some more of this. So sit back and enjoy. Yeah, so you're, I don't really know, I grew up in Pennsylvania, Lancaster County area. Um, I did not grow up a Quaker. I'm, I'm not a Quaker at the moment, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's kind of interesting because my life journey has taken me kind of back to the roots, which is, is kind of, it's just, yeah, it's different. Um, but you're, you're at Haverford college. Yes. yes. Is that like a Quaker school? Yeah. So Haverford College is, um, it was founded as a Quaker college um, in 1833, um, just outside of Philadelphia. Um, And today it's non-sectarian, but it still roots itself in its Quaker values. So I'm the curator of Quaker collections. Okay, cool. And by the way, I didn't introduce myself uh, (laughs) formally. So I'm Derek Kreider, by the way. Um, So yeah, why don't you I mean, just tell me a little bit, a little bit about your your background, because um, it looks like you're a historian of sorts. Um, but I don't really know much yeah. more than that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yes. So I was raised Quaker, um, and I went to another Quaker um, institution for college. I went to Earlham College, which is in Indiana, um, which is where I started getting interested in uh, Quaker archives. Um, and then I went to graduate school for specifically for archives and records management um, at the University of Maryland. Um, and um, at the time, I wanted to either go into Quaker archives or become a children's librarian. Um, and I feel like I've accomplished both because I have lots of nieces and nephews who I get to find books for. And then I get to do Quaker archive stuff. So um, I started um, here six years ago. Um, and um, stepped into, this is a department, um, uh, I have my, my supervisor who run, runs the department, and then um, there's a total of five and a half um, full-time equivalents, um, per, uh, permanent equivalents, and um, we kind of work together to 
um, to run the um, the Quaker collections, the college archives, photographs, rare books um, that we have. Um, there are several Quaker archives um, around the world. There's one just 30 minutes down the road at Swarthmore College, uh, France Historical Library. So uh, we collaborate a lot, as you could imagine. Um, but there's also Earlham and then Guilford, which is in North Carolina. Um, and of course, there's a lot in England, um, especially um, in London, because of, of um, Quakerism being founded there. So, um, so it's it's a small landscape of of Quaker archivists, um, and we all come at from slightly different perspectives. Um, I do feel like I come more from the archives perspective than the historian side, um, although I do take on the role of historian sometimes. Um, and I do the French Historical Association, um, which was founded in the late 1800s, um, kind of has fostered Quaker scholarship and kind of Quaker, um, Quaker discourse um, over the past almost 150 years. So um, I think if I'm passionate about nothing else, it's about conversation and complicating the, uh, the conversation with, uh, with having multiple embodying the multitude um of truths so. oh no i wasn't hoping for complicating i was hoping that i could i could be less confused no i i understand what you're saying um yeah. but it's um it, it's something that as i as i learn more about quakers so i i didn't come through the quaker door i was um you know researching justice issues and nonviolence and that kind of stuff and it's like of course i knew about quakers and abolition but then i i um you know, listen to a podcast about Quakers helping um, in Nazi Germany and like France and, and um, you know, they're just, they're just always involved um, in, in things. And so when I started to, to look deeper into it, they, they have so many cool stories. And as the archivalist or historian, I was hoping that you could maybe bring some of those that I, I haven't heard of out and kind of paint a, a clearer picture. Um, Cause I had always pictured Quakers as just like these stoic um <laughs> i don't know boring yeah. well so so my first question back to you is what's the podcast that had that episode because i want to listen to it and i don't think that i've listened um, to it so it came through the site there's a site called waging Nonviolence and um oh, yeah. city That's of refuge Lakey, right i'm not sure i'm not okay. sure what his name is but city of refuge is the podcast okay and it's like a 10-part series on um on France in particular. Um, and, and so it, it wasn't an, a series on Quakers. It was a yeah. series on this guy, Andre Trocme. And, um, but he encounters a bunch of Quakers who assist him and they're already doing the work mm -hmm. over there in France too. So you, know, you just, you run into Quakers everywhere being on the right side of, of justice issues, it seems. Yeah. Well, and that's sort of where uh, things get complicated from the beginning, which is that I think oftentimes in the on in the after in in the aftermath, it kind of looks like Quakers were on the right side, the right side of things. Um, but it's oftentimes been more like been more complicated than that. Just in um, um, thinking about so one of the things um, that sometimes leads to that is the way that Quaker process works. So I don't know if you were raised religious at all, um, but I know a lot of religions kind of use like Robert's rules or like it's a lot more hierarchical. So someone 
like there's like a band of people at the top who make a decision and then it kind of is like and this is how it will be um and that's not really how it works with quakers um it really tends to start it kind of goes back and forth between different levels of a pretty short hierarchy so it can sometimes take a very long time so the first um the first document of anti-slavery was written by a group of Mennonites and Quakers in 1688. Um, it's called the Germantown Petition. Um, and it sort of talked about, you know, is this actually moral for our souls? Like we know that the people that we are um, enslaving, like that they, they also have souls and how does this impact our morality? Um, and it took another hundred years before Philadelphia yearly meeting said like, you cannot be a Quaker in this area and be an enslaver. Like if you do, then we will kick you out. So that's a hundred years. That's a long time. So like on the right side of history, sure. Like you look back on it. Yes. Um, and I think in a lot of ways it's true with a lot of other um, um, revolutions that you see as well. Um, I think something that Quaker, so Quakerism came out of this time in the 1650s. It was, you know, there was this, um, a lot of civil unrest in England at that time. So they were among many groups who were, um, they were called seekers, you know, trying to find more, uh, find truth. Um, but it really came out of this hardship, um, that they, that this kind of grew, grew out. Um, and I think that when you look at Quaker history and specifically around things, you know, like, Quaker relief work. So times like in um, um, World War One, World War II, um, the Vietnam War, uh, War things like that, um, that you will find um, that Quakerism sometimes like changes in reaction to. Um, so um, there's a big organization which probably this the podcast hit on, but the American Friends Service Committee which was founded in 1917. And it was actually founded on the grounds of Haverford because there were many um, men who were professors who um, were involved in that founding and basically saying like, why can't we train Quakers and other people to go and do relief work in the same way that the military is training people to go and fight? And so that sort of starts a couple of generations worth of people um, um, going and there's a lot of relief work around Europe, um, particularly around feeding children and clothing children and women, um, and people who have been devastated by, um, people who are devastated by war. Um, and sometimes what you'll, what we find in the archives is materials that actually show that, um, Quakers, I think in order to do a lot of their work actually worked with the enemy like so there's documents of like where the nazis were like yes like you as the american friend service committee can go to this place like we approve that um and you're like but they were doing this radical relief work right there's sometimes contradictions in that but i think um sometimes for that longer view um a major shift that happened i think um, th that really kind of shifted Quakerism towards the second half of the 20th century is um, the Vietnam War, war um, and uh, conscientious objection. I don't know how familiar you are with conscientious objection at all. Oh, I can't hear you. Oh, 
Sorry, okay. not I'm not super familiar, but I I uh I mean I know what it is. Yeah, yeah. So they're basically, um, particularly so in the Vietnam War, like you had you had the draft, and there were a lot of young men who did not want to be drafted. Um, and so um a, a lot of Quaker young men um they became conscientious objectors and a lot of other young men were like, Oh, I don't want to fight. And the, this, these values really align with my values. So I'm going to become Quaker and become a conscientious objector. And what you find in that transition point, um, I think a lot more of um, when sometimes people talk to me, they're like, is Quakerism like a place for political action or is it a religion? And I'm like, well, Yes. Um, but I think that particularly around the Vietnam War and then many generations since, um, a lot of um, um, a lot of the outward look of it has looked like protest. Um, and there are still, you know, the American Friends Service Committee still exists today um, in many places around the world um, and also works with other organizations who do relief work like the Mennonite Central Committee um, and things like that who are um, continue to be on the ground um, in places that um, the American Friends Service Committee is not anymore. Um, so, um, so I think that that kind of gives a general arc of things. Um, and I think today um, there's... Um, there's definitely, I think, if you asked people, like, if there was, a th- like, some of the, the through lines of Quakerism, I think that one of them would be um, political action and um, involvement in, um, in politics um, in that form. Um, I think there's, um, there are f- sometimes few strands that everybody believes, but I think that that is one of them um, in seeking to do um, to be on that right side, to be looking at like what has God called us to do, um, and to to support um, to su- support people. So I think that that's um, certainly an avenue that um, you know when you look around, like um, you know, Quaker involvement in um, the Spanish Civil War as well. You know, like all of these times, like there's a big involvement and push and it kind of changes um, like Quakerism kind of morphs around those times. Um, okay. Yeah. I want to go back to something that you said, because I just read the story of, of Benjamin Lay a couple mm-hmm. months ago, and it was, it was very clear that there were slaveholders among the Quakers and Benjamin Lay was kind of the odd man out in all of that. Yeah. But I guess the reason that I would, it feels like I should still characterize Quakers as being on the right side of justice is because it seemed like, and maybe this was a was a one-off case, but it seemed like the way that they had things set up provided, even though everybody was was against Benjamin Lay, he was able to work within the system and eventually influence it to change. When I think about, um, you know, my group, the the conservative evangelicals, um, I mean, the SBC, um, a lot a lot of denominations basically they come to a head and then they're like, well, we're just going to split. And so there's never a resolution until you get a civil war or something like that. And then you're kind of forced into, into a place. So I guess that's why it feels like the Quakers are on the right side, because even though it was one man, he was able to transform the group um, kind of like a representative of them. And eventually they, they shifted to his side. Does that make sense? 
It does make sense. So Benjamin Lay was part was part of a movement of people. It was not just Benjamin Lay, right? There was um, a, a group called the Progressive Friends that actually did break away. Um, and were some of them were kicked out. So um, Lucretia Mott is a very famous um, Quaker later on who was also kicked out over um, abolition um, and anti-slavery. Um, and so I think, um, yeah, so I think you sometimes have these like small groups of people. And then like, I think that you're right. Like there is this small movement that then does change the whole body. Um there are, I will say, there are many different types of Quakers in the world today. So, you know, when you look in the Philadelphia area, um, there's pretty, like, there are some more evangelical Quaker churches um, that are Spanish speaking, um, but but p- predominantly, like, when you think of, like, the pictures of Quakers in, like, a meeting house and everything like that, that's, like, silent worship, um, that that's a lot of what's in this area. But around the world, um, actually, the majority of Quakers, um, are evangelical, um, or are just a lot more, um, a lot more, um, like main line in terms of thinking, you know, so the majority of Quakers in the world are in Africa, um, and, um, and are, you know, so like on, on the, I sometimes like to talk about, like, there's a scale, there's the, like, there's the progressiveness and political value, and then there's the progressiveness, um, and then there's like the the type of worship that is is held. So you have like around here, you have a lot more like liberal politics um, and like and very like it's called unprogrammed worship, right? And then on the very other side, you have a very programmed worship with a lot of singing and preaching, um, and also a lot more conservative political values. So that would be you know like anti-queer rights, um, you know, very patriarchal, um, like even like on the furthest edge of that, um, not wanting women as ministers, which is actually one of the beginning founding, um, Margaret Fell, who is one of the, the 60 that's called the valiant 60, um, at the beginning. Um, and she wrote basically looking in scripture of why women should be able to minister as much as men. So you really have this, and then you kind of have a lot of different things on that spectrum. Um, and so um, I think that that it's easy to categorize and um, and to only think, especially in the U.S., especially on the East Coast, about this one type of Quaker. Um, but there were breaks, right? There were real breaks. Um, and some of that comes from distance. Um, a lot of that comes from, you know, Quakers in Philadelphia moving west and as they were trying to attract more people, they were like, oh, it seems like people really like this singing thing. Maybe we should have singing. It seems like people really like being like preached at by like one person. Like, I guess we should do that. Um, even to the point of having like major Quaker revivals with like, like when you think of a, of a like a revival and like revival tent and like a whole big thing, like they were doing that. They and sometimes like a meeting would have started as an unprogrammed like silent Quaker worship model and will trans have transitioned to being this other type of worship. So I think that there's some interesting things in that as well. Um because um you know there's um I think that compared to many other um religions, Quakerism has stuck together a little bit more over time. 
but there's still a lot of, of breaks. Um, there's actually a really wonderful tree that kind of shows all of the different schisms and breaks and where everything is still continuing on today because of it. Um, okay, so they're not nearly as homogenous as as it seems, but yeah. do they like do would a more patriarchal church fellowship with a church that has a woman pastor or is it like, is the break really a break or is it, um, do they still kind of meet together and, and worship together or, um, have committees or whatnot? Yeah. Sometimes people work together, but so, um, they're, um, there are three major Quaker umbrella organizations. So one is called Friends General Conference, and that one's the more like unprogrammed liberal one. Then there's Friends United Meeting, and then there's the Evangelical Friends. So they kind of have their own hierarchies within those organizations um, and like committees and gatherings and things like that. There are a few. Um, there's a um, Friends World Committee for Consultation, and that one does embody like tries to bring people together from around all of the different types of Quakers. Um, and I've been to other conferences, especially as a young adult with other young adults um, from different kinds of Quakers. And it's very hard. And we all try to like, it's, it's a difficult place um, to sometimes sit in that uncomfortableness. Um, and um, I think one of the things that we all struggle with is, are they, are they, still Quakers, right? Um, and that comes from many different directions. Like if you aren't worshiping and believing the way that that like I am, um, can you still call yourself a Quaker? So um, do you have, like I associate nonviolence with Quakers. Like that seems mm -hmm. like it would be, if you get rid of that, you're, you can't really be a Quaker. That That's just how it feels. Um, mm -hmm. Is that true? And then also, are there any other defining aspects that would make one a Quaker or not a Quaker? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, yeah, I think, I think so, um, nonviolence and, um, and I think thinking about peace as that active peace and not a, um, um, not a, like, I, we're just going to let things pass us by, but being involved, I think that's where you see a lot of that political action coming through. Um, I do think that that is a big tenet of Quakerism around the world. Um, you know, I was I was in Kenya a year and a half ago, and I was listening to um, people preach about climate change uh, because it really impacts their day to day life, and um, in a way that, like, I think of that as part of nonviolence as well um, in terms of care for the environment. Um, so. If you look online about like Quaker beliefs, one of the things that you might find um, is um, is something called that has oftentimes been called spice or spices um, that kind of um, outlines major tenets. So you have simplicity and peace and um, uh, let's see, integrity, um, community, equality, um, and I think people have sometimes just gone towards, oh, that's what we believe um, and don't remember. So the um, the um, the peace testimony, as we call it today, um, was actually a testimony against outward war um, at the beginning when it was when it was written um, in 1660. Um, and to me, like when you read it, it's not actually against all war. It's against outward war. Um, if there's an inward war, that's really important. 
um, and as part of that, the, that, that challenging yourself and being challenged um, that I think is really, really important um, across Quakerism um, and that we have, it's really only been in the 20th century that uh, 21st and 21st century that we've called it the peace testimony, um, and which I think kind of turns it on its head. And it's really like, must have peace everywhere. Well, we know that there's going to be uh, tumult. And so how do we work through that? Um, so absolutely, peace is a major one. I think um, I think simplicity kind of goes a bit with like environmental justice of like using things that are within your means and not being overly extravagant. Um, but which I think carries through a lot of Quaker, a lot of different types of Quakers. Um, and I think um, that oftentimes looks really different depending on people's um, class, particularly um, what I might consider to be simple is not what you might consider simple. Um, you know, there are people that wear plain dress. So wear like the same outfit and they actually, people oftentimes think that they are Amish, but they're just wearing very simple clothing. Um, and then for someone else, it might be that like in their group of friends, they don't wear nail polish. Um, but because all of their other friends do for them not to it's simplicity. Right. Um, and I think that that is the heart of it where these testimonies are personal testimonies that also grow to be community testimonies. Um, so I think that that's um, sort of how that, how that works. Um, and in the, you know, 20, 20, 21st century, we've kind of more like been secured in these, these ones. But I think, um, you know, one that's really been growing is justice in terms of racial justice and um, economic and, um, and climate justice. So um, right. Yeah. Um, so an another question, and um, I don't want you to spend too much time on this because I know that I found yeah. a lot of other good things on, um, <laughs> uh, like through other interviews, and there are some other questions that I haven't found that I'd really like to get to. But sure. I, I don't think it's really possible to talk about Quakers without talking about the way that they make decisions, um, because you were so, and that's something that kind of confuses me, and I think confuses a lot of Westerners. Um, and I've, I've seen a little bit of it in the Orthodox Church where. You know, instead of having like a pope who's preeminent, they have um, you know different people, and they might have one pre one priest who is the um, what is it called? Something uh, like not prominent among equals, but it's it's something like that where it's like we're all equal, but nevertheless everybody kind of uh, gives reverence to this this one person a little bit more so. Uh, it kind of seems that way on Quakerism. So when you use words like you know uh, different versions of Quakerism have different hierarchies. So hierarchy doesn't seem to go with the with how I imagine the decision-making process, but I can't imagine having a decision-making process <laughs> without hierarchy. So could you maybe simplify that a little bit for me? I will do my best to simplify it. Um, is this the one that you wanted me to spend a lot of time on or no? It, no. You go for it and then, okay. yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, so oftentimes the way that Quaker decision-making has been translated into, uh, into Western language has been uh, consensus-making, um, which is not actually what it is. Um, what Quaker decision-making is, is sense of the meeting, which is probably even more confusing than less. So the sense of the meeting is um, basically, um, so business decisions, so, so business meeting is called, it's not just called business meeting. It's called meeting for worship for business. 
um, weddings are meeting for worship with attention to marriage. Um, everything kind of flows through that because a lot of Quakerism and that grounding is through community and through being the presence of one another. So in business meeting, you do have, um, we usually call them clerks who, who um, kind of organize the meeting um, and kind of work through the agenda. Um, and when a decision comes forward, um, there's conversation and discussion. Um, and then the clerk might call for silence to kind of settle back in and to kind of really try, in a lot of ways, they're trying to read the room, I think is another way to think about it. Um, but trying to read the room as well as also trying to see what is God trying to say in all of this as well? Like how, how is that impacting all of this? Um, and then what they might say is, so what I'm hearing the sense of the meeting is, and then they'll make their statement. Um, and then there might be people who are like, oh no, that is not at all what I said. <laughs> I meant something completely different and I do not agree with what you said. So um, when they, when they say that I, I feel this is the sense of the meeting, mm-hmm. are they, are they really saying, Hey, this is how I feel. Or are they saying, this is what I think I heard from everybody else. Is it others focused or self-focused? Um, it's other focused as well as God focused, right? So like, so in a lot of ways, like when I am clerking a meeting, um, I might have like what I want, but I have to take, see what other people are thinking. And so I might not actually get my way. Um, but, but sort of seeing like, Oh, like what does, what does this, what are people actually thinking? Um, and there are sometimes decisions that don't get made for years. This is why it takes so long is because of the sense of the meeting that like sometimes the clerk will say, I don't have a clear sense of this meeting. We will have to keep talking about this. Um, and sometimes this gets very infuriating um, when it's a decision like what there's there are jokes about this. You know, how many Quakers does it take to screw in a light bulb? And there's like the committee and you have to get the sense of the meeting and um, but like literally around like painting the color of the walls, you know, um, things like that, that there's kind of jokes towards that end. Um, but that's that's how quicker decision making, like that's how that led to um, meetings deciding to um, uh, to become um, anti-slavery is in meetings like that and having those discussions and clerks reading that room and saying like, there is not a clear sense here. Um, now does this get taken advantage of at certain points? Absolutely. People have their agendas. Um, you know, it, this happened with the 1688 protest where it just didn't get on the agenda. The, the person who was making the agenda put it in, well, lore goes that it just got, it got folded and put into a drawer. And they were like, we are not ready to hear this which is also a decision and it could have been a personal decision and also could have been part of that sense of the meeting. Um, but those things certainly happen. I don't know, know if that kind yeah. of clarifies things enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll definitely, I'll put links to some of the other videos that I saw because mm-hmm. I, I know it can sound, it can sound really um, fickle at first to say you do this about the colors of the walls, but I've seen some very good explanations as to um and it's one of the things that I, I love about how you really do put God into every decision and think about the ramifications it has for other people and, and how the world is really in, interconnected. Um, right. So like like the color of the wall, well, it might not actually be about the color of the wall, 
but it's about the paint that you're using and the fumes, right? And caring about what we're like, what the meeting is bringing in and what it's doing to the environment, right? So like the joke and the fickleness is about the color of about painting the walls, but that's not what it's about. So yeah. 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 So, um, kind of shifting, shifting gears a little bit, cause I, I want to get into some of the, the historical things more so. Um, so again, I come from conservative evangelicalism and, you know, in the, the last five years, the make America great again thing came up and I've just, I've read through too much history to like, I know that that's just, that's baloney and, and it's, uh, it's trying to get people riled up and it's like people just don't know history. And so my group, oftentimes we think that, well, we were kind of saviors, you know, we were good. We established this, this wonderful, wonderful uh, institution, this wonderful government. And we were, we were being persecuted and here for religious freedom. Um, And, and I'm sure there's a, a bit of truth to that in some ways, but we don't, we don't seem to be able to understand the real picture. And so as I'm reading through different accounts and I'm seeing like Quakers uh, and, and other nonviolent groups like Mennonites were, um, you know, when, when there was conscription or when that, when there was wartime, like they'd have their possessions taken or they'd be killed or beaten. Um, the, the Quakers, especially who were friendly with the native Americans, there were a lot of repercussions for them. And, and there were stories of Quakers being slaughtered alongside of their, their Native American friends. And this is done by, you know, my ancestors, the, the Protestant Christians who were fleeing religious persecution. So I would love for you, I, I know that's a very long, deep history, but I, I'd love for you to, to help my group get a sense of how we persecuted other people, like other Christians even, mm-hmm. and um, how, how in a sense there were other groups of Christians who were bearing the witness of Christ through martyrdom at more so than than my group or alongside mm-hmm. um, yeah so i'm trying to figure out how to make this a short story which i'm not sure that there that there fully is a way but i can at least give a give a beginning of it um so quakers were persecuted from day one um, they were going against the Church of England, and so um, and they were um, they were instigating people. <laughs> so Quakers were arrested all of the time, all of the time. There were points when there were more Quakers in jail than outside of it in England. Um, they were heavily, heavily persecuted for not wanting to become part of the military for um, for worship. Um, it was illegal to worship. It was illegal to marry. Um, as a Quaker, like to marry outside of the institution of the Church of England. Um, so that is kind of the story from the beginning <laughs> is of this persecution. Um, and that when I mentioned earlier that um, that document about that Margaret Fell wrote about women, um, uh, it's called uh, Women Speaking Justified. Uh, she wrote that while she was in jail. Um, you know, a lot of that writing happened in jail. Um they would take care of each other's kids when the, when both parents were in jail, then the kids would still be taken care of. So um, there is a lot of, of that from the beginning. Um, And so when, so William Penn becomes Quaker um, sort of uh, 
not very happily by the rest of his family, particularly his father. Um, but he inherited this land called um, he in- inherited this land. He inherited this land called Pennsylvania, or that became Pennsylvania, right? Penn's land, Penn's woods, um, and it was founded on this idea of religious freedom, right? Like that's part of this whole idea of where we are. This part um, was founded in that way. You know, it's not the same. Like in New England, there were they were founded like those areas were founded under different circumstances. Um, and you find people like Mary Dyer, who was hanged on Boston common for being Quaker. And she had been kicked out um, of Boston and basically said, do not come back to the colonies. Otherwise we will hang you. Um, and so she went to England and then was like, I'm supposed to be in Boston. I have, I have work to do and God's calling me back to be in Boston. And she went back. Um, and then she was hanged along with a few other people. Um, and so I think that there's this idea of, um, you know, I think once there's the idea of like, this is the right side and I'm going to stay on it, even if it means that you're going to persecute me and throw me in jail and threaten me with, with death, um, and murder. Like this is, um, the, like, these are the things that I'm supposed to be doing, Um, And I think that there's can be some danger in that. um, But I think that that is part of um, part of that, that history. Um, You know, people traveled together. Um, There were ways to kind of, you know, when you say like, oh, like you're being called by God. It's like, well, who's checking you on that? Like, who is actually saying that? Is that you or is that like something happening? Um, And then we actually have committees of people that will help like figure out, like sit down with you and say like, so where is this coming from? Where is this leading coming from? You know, tell us more. Um, is this actually something that we can affirm? Or does this kind of need some more testing and you need to think about it for longer? Um, so um, so I think that there are some of those things that get that got built in, particularly around when things did not go their way. Um, if you read up on James Naylor, which is a whole other thing. Um, but if you read about him, um, he, um, he was led, um, through, um, through London naked on a donkey. Um, and so, um, but there's a really complicated story around health, mental health and who was actually doing the work. Um, but that led to needing to have more of those checks and balances. Um, so it means that Quakers were a lot of Quakers were like on the side of indigenous folks in this area. Um, and people didn't like that, as you were saying, um, Quakers were really involved in politics for like the first hundred years. Um, and then slowly, um, it became a lot harder for them to stay in, in that the same level. Um, so yeah, I know that that's sort of only starts to get at it, but I don't know if that helps at all to kind of, explain a little bit of, of where that comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know you, you probably have to go. I just, um, I, uh, I can schedule I, another time. Yeah. I have, um, I have like 10 more minutes if you want to, Okay. You wanna, I, I usually, uh, block things off to have some buffer, but I'm happy to, to spend a little bit more time. Okay. So let me, let me ask you the, I have, um, like two two big questions and mm-hmm. I'll I'll ask them to you and then you can pick one or if you get time to to hit both then great. Mm-hmm. Uh so I would I would like to know so with women like I know Benjamin Lay I think his wife Sarah Lay was also kind of like a preacher. I think she was a um 
And so women leading, which I'm sure was very different than, than most other groups at that time. And the, they're reading on abolition, which, uh, you know, I've read some of Mark Knoll's work and he assesses what, what the interpretations of scripture were at that, that point. And it's, it's like, where did they get the hermeneutic to read the Bible differently than just about everybody else had for most of Christian history? Um, and, and read it rightly, but differently. So that would be, that would be one point of interest. Um, my other question is, is about government because I struggle someone who, who embraces, um, nonviolence government is inherently violent. Legislation is violence. I mean, it, it's backed by the sword, no matter, no matter how little the legislation, if you don't follow it, it ultimately leads to sword. If you don't pay the fine or do this or do that, um, police come to your door and they will take you to jail. So how do you, how do Quakers, um, like I know that that in Pennsylvania there was they were doing politics, um, but my understanding was a lot of them were kind of it was kind of like very minor what they were doing in terms of their like oversight and um, you know they they created penitentiaries is my understanding and, and so they they did things very differently it seems or at least started to um, so I, I'd be interested in how they mesh nonviolence or peace with government and how that might've looked different when they ran government. So hermeneutics or government, take your pick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll take government for, for 200. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so, well, so first I'll, I'll hit on the first part, um, which um, is that I would, you'll be, you can find the text of, um, of women speaking justified by Margaret Fell. Um, and you, so you can read her, Early Quakers, um, they breathed and wrote the Bible and Bible verses. Um, I had I've had professors who have said basically most of Quaker writing in the early like in for the first like twenty to forty years um, is Bible scripture is scripture just rewritten with some other prepositions. So I think that that would be a good place to start in terms of where she was reading that um, and where then where Quakers were reading that. So that's sort of where I would lead for that part. Um, I don't have a strong background for abolition in terms of the hermeneutics around that. Um, but I think that that would at least would get some of the, the women part. Um, in terms of government, um, I think like Quakers knew from the beginning that they weren't going to necessarily be able to do this whole like sense of the meeting thing at a governmental level. Right. Um, so I think that there is some understanding in that, but also being like, okay, so like maybe it goes back to the sword, but maybe we can make it a nicer sword question mark. Like maybe like we don't have to do all of these fines question mark. Um, I think that there's definitely some of that. Um, and I'll speak a little bit. I'll like jump from the beginning. I'll kind of talk today about how people, how lo- some Quakers think about government and things like taxes, um, right? Like taxes, I feel like is one really amazing um, piece that a lot of us don't think about in terms of um, the damage and violence inherent in our tax system, right? Um, And how big of the percentage is of our taxes that goes to war, for instance, right? So there are Quakers who will literally sit down and look at the percentages every single year. They will do their taxes and they will say, okay, I am not paying taxes to support war. I will pay my 
32% of my other taxes that will go to all of these other benefits, but I will not pay my war taxes. Um, and there are lawyers who will work with people on, on war tax resistance in many different forms um, of, um, of, yeah, of not paying those exact taxes. There are some people that choose um, to live below the poverty line, which means that they are receiving, they might be receiving benefits um, that are government benefits, but they are also not paying into the tax system itself, if that makes sense. Um, that's another way. And then there are some people that just don't pay them and the IRS comes after them and, you know, they will, um, there are lawyers who do some pro bono work on this, um, with people, uh, to kind of help, um, craft language around it. Um, it's tricky. Um, I think, Many people inside the Quaker world, as well as outside, who are nonviolent and who um, really kind of question um, the use of those taxes, um, it can be really, really hard when it comes to to writing that check or whatever it is, right? Well, and that um, helps you understand the paint color dilemma too, because if I give a particular company my money, and that's basically depending on what they do with it, you're paying a tax to them that that is going to be used for malicious purposes. Right. Well, and it's, you know, I think one of the things that Quakers have done a lot is, um, is kind of, uh, is, uh, is walked the talk with their money, right? So, you know, around abolition, you know, a lot of this idea of like drab, like Quaker, Quaker gray, and like all of these things is because they would not use cotton or dyes produced by slave labor. Um, right. So that would oftentimes cost more money. Um, they would do, you know, that's one element. You know, there are a lot of people um, who, you know, the American Front Service Committee is not particularly beloved by the Israeli government today, for example, because they um, not only participate themselves, but encourage other people to become part of the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. Um, and so and so speaking with with those dollars. And I think that there are a lot of Quakers who, if you ask them, like, do you boycott something? That they would say, yes, I boycott X for Y reason. Um, th- that I think would be a fairly, co- especially in the Western world, um, I think that would be a fairly common thing to say. Um, so absolutely. Um, and I think it also gets tricky of like where things kind of come around. I think Quakers are like in favor of government um, and government involvement to like make sure that people can be secure, um, but also um making sure that it's doing the the right things for the right reasons and being on the right side of it. Right. Um, which I think is tricky. Some people would say like, I want my money to go to war and I don't want it to go to my local library. Right. Um, so how we work around those things is always a challenge. Right. That's all for now. So peace. And because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. This podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.